Father God, we thank you for your great grace. Thank you that Jesus came to rescue us, to pour out his life for us, that we might be welcomed by the Father. And so, Father, we pray now, speak to us through the scriptures, uh, open our hearts by the Spirit, that we might hear your voice and be obedient to you as you build us up with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Do take a seat. And if you've got a Bible, do turn back to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our little series in Ephesians. Michael Calvin is a football scout who scours the earth looking for the next world-beating superstar. Imagine he goes off to an estate, and it's a place of drugs and gangs, and he sees a young nine-year-old, kind of barefooted, playing in a reserve. Instantly, he spots his talent. And over the next few months, he signs him for Liverpool. And uh, you can imagine on the day he signs the boy. He says to him, you're now a part of Liverpool. You're a rep for a great football club. So remember who you are. It's a tremendous privilege. You mustn't get caught up in the drugs or the gangs. You're an ambassador of this club. Live like it. Well, it's a, Michael Calvin's a real person, but that's a made-up example. But Paul would say something similar to us this morning. Uh, as a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And what a calling it is, not to play for Liverpool. For some, that would be a good thing. I imagine others, that would be a terrible thing. But this is wonderful for all of us. We've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. We've been raised up into the heavenly realms and blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ if we're a Christian. We're members of God's family. And so Paul says, live in the light of that. Live in a way worthy of the privilege that God has given to us. And uh, this exhortation carries on for a couple of chapters. But today we see two things. First, keep the unity. Keep the unity. And then second, build the body. Build the body. This first thing is, is keep the unity. The church is one united body, so do everything you can to keep the unity. Look again at verse 1. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3 sums it up. In short, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, before we think how we can do that, just see why it's important to Paul. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Do you see, over and over and over again, one. There is just one body. There is just one church. So keep unity. Now, it seems a bit odd to us, doesn't it? As we look around, there are many churches and many denominations. But uh, in Ephesians, the church is, first of all, the heavenly gathering. Remember, Paul's talked about how when we believed, we were raised up into the heavenly realms. And what he talks about first is the, the, the gathering in heaven of the one church. And that's reflected on earth in local churches. So St. Stephen's is a reflection of the unity of the one church in heaven. And see how he links this to God. There is just one Lord, one God, he says. It's as if he's saying, can you split God? And the answer is clearly no. There's no factions or or bits to God. 
and nor can there be in the body of Christ. And the link, too, shows that this is true unity. For some people, visible unity triumphs everything. We just long for one church, a broad church that will hold all views together. And Paul would say, no, this is a church united in the one truth of the gospel. Take it, that's why when uh, the province, the the Anglican church in, in New Zealand, walked away in some ways from the scriptures it was no small thing for us to to acknowledge that and if you were at the meeting when we we voted to do that uh, I think it was 97% of people said we want to do that and normally 97% of people say we want to do something there's a great sense of joy it's very rare to have that level of unity but on that evening there was no joy there was a kind of stunned sadness Because we long for unity. We long that the province would come back and we long that Nelson would spearhead that, that the whole province would come back and there'd be a unity as we join them again or that others join with us in the new diocese. But the unity isn't just structural unity. This is gospel unity. And it's wonderful that we had Stephen Wittier up here where we have true unity with them. as As I wave this flyer around, This is for people, not just Anglicans, but all kinds of Christians, and we have true unity in the one God. Now, I do think this has something to say to denominations, but the chief focus of Paul is not so much how does one church relate to another, so much as how do we relate to ourselves? How does St. Stephen's relate to, to, how do we relate within St. Stephen's? It's about the local church. And Paul would say, we at St. Stephen's are Christians in one body, made by one spirit, called to the same one hope, worshipping the same one Lord Jesus, holding to the same one faith, baptized into the same name, the same one God, worshipping the same Father. And so keep the unity. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Keep the unity. It doesn't say be united. That's how I'd put it. Do everything you can to be united. No, he says you are united, so keep it. And if we think lightly of this, do we see that we're actually mocking what Christ has done at the cross? The great thrust of this whole letter has been God is making one unified people under Christ. And if we hold it lightly, we're mocking that. But how do we keep the unity? Come back to me to verse 2, where Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. When disunity comes, when there's breaches and ruptures, it's so often because we're not doing that. Somebody has said that behind all discord lurks pride. And we can understand how that works, can't we? When I'm being proud, I'm grumpy if if people don't go with my way or, or if people slight me. But when we're able to be humble, we're determined not to seek respect for ourselves, but we're eager to give honor to others. And that kind of attitude promotes unity, doesn't it? Or take the idea of gentleness or or, or meekness, which is very definitely not weakness. Rather, it's the idea of those who are strong, but whose strength is so under control that they're, as it were, masters of themselves and able to serve others. And as you say that, surely we think of Jesus, who exemplifies all of these qualities, who is humble enough to come to earth, Gentle enough that though we were objects of wrath, turned from him. He didn't dismiss us in anger, but was perfectly patient with us, loving us, pouring out his grace to us, and bearing with us. 
And when we find unity hard, we need to look to Jesus. And we need to call to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are making me like yourself. Help me. And you see, this is all of our responsibility. If you're someone who is, um, so to speak, causing trouble, Paul would say to you, be humble, be gentle. And if you're somebody who's having trouble caused to you, then he'd say, be patient. Bear with that person causing you trouble. And in reality, it's often a muddle of the two, isn't it? We all need to hear all of it at times. But you see, this is for everyone. Make every effort to keep the unity. And one commentator says, actually, that's a bit weak. He says, it's hardly possible to render the urgency of this word. There's a sense of haste and passion and full effort. The phrase excludes passivity, quietism, a wait-and-see attitude. Rather, it says to us, yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. Such are the overtones. What a strong thing, Paul says. There is one united church, so keep the unity. But then Paul says, build the body. Jesus has given everyone grace so that we can play a part in building the body. So build the body. Someone on Friday asked me, what am I preaching on this Sunday? And I told them the passage, and uh, quick as a flash, they obviously knew the passage well. They said, so you're going to tell your church that uh, you're God's gift to them. And I thought, pardon? And then I realized, looking at, I guess, verse 11, which talks about pastors being a gift. And I, I guess there is a sense that Jay and I are God's gift to the church. But that sounds incredibly arrogant, doesn't it? Until we see verse 7. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That Christ has given each one of us gifts. And friend, that means, if you're a believer, that you, as the person you are with the gifts that Christ has personally given to you, are God's gift to this church. It's not a mind-blowing thought. And uh, we don't have time to look at these verses in details, but in verse 8, he explains it. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. It's a quote from Psalm 68. And in the original, the, the psalm is talking about uh, God leading people out of uh, Egypt and uh, triumphantly through the desert with God's enemies uh, scattering before him. And then God ascends Mount Zion, the place where symbolically he dwells. And as he does so, he, he uh, receives gifts from the army, uh, and uh, just as a conquering king would receive booty. And he gives it back to his army. And these verses are saying that Christ is like that. And uh, just as Christ uh, ascended, well, what did he do? Before that, he descended. And uh, I think it means he descended to earth. And uh, we sometimes look for more meaning in these verses. But we must marvel at the incarnation that Jesus, the great God of heaven, came down to win a victory for his people. And then as he returns, he gives gifts. And he gives one to each. He gives variety to each one of us. And do you see the goal of this? Just look on to the middle of verse 12. The goal is the body would be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And that's the same kind of idea, isn't it, that we see at the end of verse 11, that the, the full, God, Christ descended to fill the universe. And how does he do it? He does it through the church. And we've seen that again and again. 
But these gifts are given that we might be built up and that we might grow uh, in knowledge of him, grow up into him, and through us, the universe begins to be filled as all things in heaven and on earth are united under Christ. It's a great privilege, and he equips us to do it. Well, in particular, what is he given? First, he's given, verse 11, some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And the common thing for all of these is they are word gifts, some to be apostles, those who met the risen Lord Jesus and were sent to speak out in his name, the prophets who in the early church were there to speak the the words of God before the New Testament was written down, and then evangelists and pastor-teachers, gifts we still have today, of those who make the the word known, first of all, to those who who don't know the evangelists, and then pastor-teachers who shepherd and care for God's people. But you see, all of them are people who preach and teach the word of God. And you see the goal of this, as the word of God is taught, what happens? Look at verse 12. They build up the body. Just look carefully, that's right, isn't it? That's what they do. Jay Jay and my job is to teach and preach so that the body is built up. Nobody's nodding or shaking. That's not rhetoric. Is, is that what it says? Some people are looking. I don't think it is what it says. What does verse 12 say? The goal of the pastor teacher isn't, first of all, to build up the body of Christ. It's to prepare or equip everyone to do works of service so that together, as we together serve, we build up the body of Christ. And I think that's a bit of a surprise. I don't think you could think of St. Stephen's like this, but three times this week I've come across this funny example, so there must be some churches like this. But uh, three different people have said, church is not like a bus. Think what you do on a bus, you get on, and there's a driver who drives the bus. And in some churches, the vicar is like the driver, and everyone else is a passenger. And maybe if you're lucky, you have an old school conductor, and he pops up and collects some money from time to time. But do you see that's not the picture of a church here? It's not just about the vicar driving the bus. Everyone is uh, to be involved. It's not even like a sports team. I wonder if we, I don't think looking at St. Stephen's, you could think it was a bus like that. But maybe from time to time people would think it's like a sports team. And there's, uh, there's the first 11 on, on the pitch and, and they're running around. And uh, there's some subs who sometimes get involved. But there's lots of spectators. But you see, that's not the image either. Look again at verse 7. To each one of us, grace is given. Or verse 11, to prepare God's people for works of service. Not some of God's people, but look at the end of 16. We see the body grows as it builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. The picture is not a bus or a football team, but a body where, whether you're an eye or a finger or a big toe, or the kidney, you, each one of us have a part to play. Or a better image might be an orchestra. Sorry, not better than body, since that's God's image. But it, an image that's um, not a bus or a, what did I say, a sports team, is an orchestra, where, if you know anything about an orchestra, every part needs to play their part, don't they? Whether that's the first flute or, or the guy playing the triangle. If, if somebody's missing out, the, the sound doesn't sound right. And the, the thing about that image is, what does the pastor teacher do? They're like the conductor who helps everyone to play their part at the right time, to use their gifts as they've got them. Well, how does the pastor teacher do this? 
I think primarily it's through preaching the gospel. Remember, all of these are are word roles. And as that great vision of the gospel, as Jesus is made clear to us, as we remember that we can come from death to life, and we're part of his great plan of bringing all things into unity under in the church, we're drawn out of ourselves, and we're equipped to serve. Most of you know that uh, Charlie and I worked in Japan for, for some time before we came to New Zealand. And the mission organization we worked for had uh, a great love of strategy. Now, I, I don't really like the word strategy because it means so many different things to different people. And the idea of, of having a plan, of knowing what you're going to do, is, is important. But the strategy doesn't get things done. And in this organization, we'd have endless meetings about strategy. And I, uh, I think we probably had a wonderful strategy. But I kept asking, how is that strategy going to help us to do it? And what I longed for these leaders to do is to keep telling me about Jesus. Because if I, as the missionary on the ground, am on fire with love for Jesus, if I'm secure in his love for me, if I'm burdened with his love for those who are outside, who are under his wrath, then I can't but help make him known. And the strategy tells me what to do, but it doesn't get me doing it. And I think there's a sense that that's how it works here. That's why I love what Steve said about pastoring the pastors, that as he gets the people in Nelson more and more on fire with Jesus, that diocese will grow. And I take it as Jay and I preach and pastor here, as we hear more and more about Jesus, then we do this. We, we serve, serve one another, and we serve those outside. Incidentally, that's why if I come visit you in hospital or, or, or we go for a coffee, I'll ask you, how's it going with Jesus? I might not use that phrase, but I, I, I'll ask you, how, how's it going? I, I want to read a psalm with you or pray with you because my job is not just to, to come and give you a hug or you probably don't want me to give you a hug, but arrange a meal for you or, or be friendly to you, but it's to help you see Jesus. And as we do that, we are able to build one another up. But you see, it doesn't just stop there with hearing the Bible. We sometimes talk, don't we, about uh, our church as a, a Bible-teaching church. What kind of church do you go to? I go to a church that teaches the Bible. And that's really important, isn't it? But I think Paul wouldn't just say that's enough. It's not about just the Bible being taught, but about the Bible being heard and obeyed. And when that happens, we serve one another. And verse 12, as that happens, the body grows. And I love the way this happens so spontaneously here. We hear of somebody in need, and we take them a meal, or we help with their kids, or somebody's struggling, and we write them a letter, uh, or we pray for them, or somebody's in hospital, so somebody else goes and visits them, or we find out somebody needs encouragement, so we go and give it. And you see how different that is to a church that's like a bus, where somebody's in trouble, so we phone the driver. But here, no, we serve one another. And we keep doing it, verse 13, until we reach unity in the faith, And in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, we keep going until we grow up. Well, do you see the two results of this? Verse 14, it means we'll no longer be infants. That verse that Andrew mentioned earlier, we'll not be tossed back and forth by the waves or blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and the craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. You see, we won't be immature. And the picture is is of people bobbing about on a boat with seasickness. And we sometimes see people like that, don't we? 
that they're, they're at sea in a storm and some new fad or some new teaching or some new book is, is doing the rounds and they're blown off course. And sadly, you sometimes see churches like that. And, and Paul would tell us, expect that kind of thing, that people are being crafty and deceitful, they're scheming. But if we're growing in love, if we're serving one another, we'll stand firm. We won't be tricked. And do you see the lovely contrast in verse 15? Instead of hearing these deceitful, scheming teachings, we'll be speaking the truth in love to one another. And we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And just notice what this means. Just as all of us have a role in serving, in building the body up, all of us have a role in speaking. Now, clearly, it's not the pastors and teachers speaking here. All of us have a role in speaking the truth in love. But it's just worth thinking what that means. We sometimes take that as, uh, I'm going to tell you some home truths. And they're things that you don't really want to hear, but they're for your good, and so I'm going to come over and tell you them, and, uh, but I'll do it lovingly, because it's for your good. Now, there's times we, we do need to do that, of course, and uh, we should do it in love. But I don't think that's what it means here. Here, speaking the truth in love means, as it does in Galatians 4, speaking the gospel. Not that we are always quoting Bible verses to us, but that as we rub shoulders with one another, we help each other to, to, to apply the gospel into our situations. And as we do that, we grow up in Christ. Just think what that looks like. Somebody comes to you this week and, and uh, they say, I'm so stressed about my exams or, or about my, my future or, or my hospital test. And what would the world say to that person? Surely say something like, don't worry, it'll all be all right, even if it won't be. Uh, or, or it would say, well, don't worry, whatever will be, will be. No, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But there's not much gospel and the way we say it, what we exactly say, will depend on our personality and, and who we are and our relationship. But surely the gospel says, you don't need to worry because you have a father in heaven who loves you dearly. And he will never leave you. And so I'm going to pray for you. And as we say that, we build one another up. Or somebody comes and says, I'm really stressed at work. I, I just can't stop. There's so much to do. And the world would say, we'll, we'll get a hobby. Or, or be more firm with your boss, or, or, or just chill out. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but it's, again, not very gospel. But as we speak words of God, do you know that you are so secure in your identity in Christ that even if you were to uh, not do your work and, and lose a promotion, you'd still be deeply loved by God? And what exactly we say will depend, but do you see as we say things like that to each other, we build each other up? And it gives a huge significance to the, the small moments. And we do that spontaneously. I take it all the time. Either we speak the words of the world to one another, or we speak these gospel, life-giving words that build us up into Christ. And, of course, there's more deliberate ways to do it. Prayer triplets or one-on-ones. What was the phrase that, that Steve used? PMR. I hope that we have people who've got permission to personally muddle in your life. And not to knock you down, but to help you build up. I hope that our small groups are like that. I, I take it the joy of small groups is that uh, we can do this with each other. The, the problem with sermons is I can throw out a few general applications. But I don't really know what's going on in your life. But I take it the people in your small group do and should. And so we say to one another, what does this, really, this passage really mean to your life? 
and we speak the truth to each other in love, and as we do, as we point one another to Christ, what happens? We grow up into our head. And isn't this a wonderful picture, verse 16, of a body keep building itself up in love as each part does its work, as we serve and as we speak the truth, the gospel, to one another in love. Well, we're out of time, but I'd love to finish with um, a story uh, that uh, happened to me this week. And uh, I've asked Bernie if I can share this. And I think it illustrates the, um, both the normalcy and the profundity of this, that it's something very simple and yet very profound. Uh, as many of you know, that Elaine has uh, been sick for some time. She's been in hospital this past two weeks. And uh, I went around to see Bernie on, I think it was Thursday, and uh, we were just chatting. And uh, I said to Bernie, has it been a bit easier having a little bit of a break uh, with Elaine in hospital and, and you've not been caring for y- y- yourself full time? And Bernie said, it's been nice to have a little bit of rest but I love her so much and I'm really looking forward to her coming home so I can care for her again. And then he said, I made a promise 60 years ago in the sight of God to love Elaine in sickness and in health and I intend to do that. Now, Bernie wasn't trying to teach me the Bible. He was just being himself. He was just speaking the truth and being himself. But those words have been rattling around in my head all since that day because in a world where marriage is cheap, where even some Christian teachers would say if, if your uh, spouse develops Alzheimer's or dementia or, or, or that kind of thing, you're free to leave them. Uh, in, in, a, in a world where promises are there, it would seem to be broken. Bernie's determination is a huge encouragement to me. And when you think about why is Bernie different, why would many people here be different? Surely it's because we've sat under the scriptures taught by the apostles and prophets and then made known to us by an evangelist or a pastor and a teacher. And as we've heard them, as Bernie's heard them, he's served others and been served and so been built up so that in the hard time, instead of being knocked around like a wave, he stands firm, he presses on, and without even realizing it, Bernie then builds me up with his truthful words. And those words have made me more committed to keep my marriage vows, have made me more committed to trusting God in times of trouble. And do you see how simple it is? And yet also how wonderfully profound. Well, friends, may God help us more and more to do that, to keep the unity and to build the body because he's equipped us to do it. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we long that you would build us up. We thank you so much that every single person here is given wonderful gifts. And so, Father, help us to know what our gifts are and to use them to serve. Help us to speak the, the wonderful life-giving truths of the scriptures to each other this week that we might grow up in Christ. So please, dear Father, help us for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.